0: Welcome to the Press On Podcast. Expect to be inspired, challenged, and strengthened. In this episode, we'll hear from Zaz Ustazen on Daniel, Extravagant Providence. There's something quite extraordinary about the love of God for his people. It is, as we know, similar to the love of a father for his children, but he is a father of infinite patience and boundless mercy a father whose providence for his people can only be described as extravagant in its excess. We've come to know this as his grace or undeserved favor in Christ Jesus our Lord, but I think this was also particularly evident and on display during the time of Daniel the prophet. If we read between the lines and find the backstory of God's people amongst all the visions and dreams of Daniel, we find some incredible providential care at work. So let's start with Daniel chapter 1 and the first of the three attacks on Jerusalem around 605 BC. We want to try and understand the storyline of the people in between the key events highlighted by Daniel's record. In verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem, and Ashpenaz, the chief officer, takes captive the royal family and the nobility. And then the brightest and best of these captives are educated in The way of the Chaldeans for three years. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are found to be ten times better than the rest of all the captives. And they are then given positions in the royal court. That's Daniel chapter one. Then in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of the nations that Daniel interprets the head of gold, chest and arms of silver, the belly and thighs of brass, the legs of iron and the feet of part iron and part clay. And then following the dream's interpretation by Daniel, he is made ruler over all the province of Babylon and chief over all the wise men, the magicians, the enchanters, and the astrologers. And so ironically, Daniel is now in charge of all those who had taught him. After just three years, he is promoted to the position of chief governor of the king, which is pretty amazing considering both his age and the fact that he's a foreigner among them, a Jewish boy now ruling over the Babylonian elders. Next, in Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, not satisfied with his dream, only having a head of gold, now makes an image of all gold for everyone to bow down to. And of course, we know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to bow down and are thrown into the fiery furnace, where they are then delivered by an angel. And subsequent to that, in verse thirty. Nebuchadnezzar promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Then Daniel chapter 4 is about Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great tree that is chopped down and its fulfillment then in Nebuchadnezzar himself when he says, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And then he becomes like a beast of the field and he ate grass like an ox. And although we're not told... It's quite likely that Daniel, a second-in-command of Babylon, would have ruled in in Nebuchadnezzar's absence. And so Daniel would have reigned over Babylon for seven years while Nebuchadnezzar had a mental breakdown. Daniel chapter 5 is uh, about Belteshazzar's feast, where hand writes on the wall with the inscription, Mini, Mini, Tekel, and Parson. And following Daniel's interpretation of that text, In verse 29, Belteshazzar makes Daniel the third ruler of the kingdom before he is then killed that very same night by the Medes and the Persians. Daniel chapter 6 is when Darius the Mede becomes king of Babylon. And at the beginning of the chapter, Darius makes Daniel one of three chief rulers among the 120 provincial governors. And this then leads to the episode of the jealousy over Daniel. Uh, and the subsequent event of the lion's den. After which, at the end of the chapter in verse 28, we read that Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian until at least the third year uh, of his reign in Daniel chapter 10 and verse one. And so Daniel rules through the reigns of four different kings that he mentions, plus evil Meredith in uh, second Kings 25. It's highly unusual for right hand men to remain in favor with five different kings uh, in succession. Invariably, conquerors appoint their own friends and trusted advisors, rather, rely on existing governors who might be loyal to their predecessors. And lastly, then, as part of setting the scene by way of introduction, let's look at the age and historic timeline of Daniel. In 605 BC, Daniel goes into exile as a teenager of about 17 years old. We're not told Daniel's exact age, uh, but there are two men in the Old Testament who go into exile to rule, Daniel and Joseph. They both interpret dreams and as a result of that rise to power in what I think is clearly a pattern or type starting at the age of 17, we learn in Genesis 37 and verse two. So after three years of education, Daniel stands before Nebuchadnezzar at the age of 20. And after 70 years of captivity, Cyrus decrees that the Jews can now go and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem in the first year of his reign in 536 BC. And then three years later, at the age of 90, is Daniel's last historical date in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 1. So we know that Daniel lived to at least the age of 90 and was in authority for an incredible 70 years, comparable to Queen Elizabeth II of England. However, Daniel surprisingly doesn't return with the exiles under Zerubbabel. Why do you think that was for someone who was so passionate about his God? Perhaps he was too old to make the journey, although that appears unlikely as he was a man of considerable means, able to travel in comfort, and he certainly wasn't the only old one. Ezra 3 in verse 12 tells us that many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. I'd like to suggest that an alternative reason for Daniel not returning to Jerusalem is that perhaps he thought he could do more good in the position of influence that he found himself in in Babylon. Let's explore that idea in some more detail, the idea that Daniel was in power for 70 years from the age of 20 to the age of 90 through the reign of five different kings who all kept him in authority while God's people were in exile. It is Daniel himself who says that God rules in the kingdoms of men, and I think that he was talking from personal experience. So after Daniel's first dream interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's image, we read that the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. However, his first recorded act of authority was not for the king, it was not for himself, but for his three friends. In Daniel 2 and verse 39, Daniel made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego of the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. There, in the very next verse, before the famous incident of the fiery furnace, immediately after his promotion, his first thought was, how can I use this for advantage, for the good of others? I wonder if that would even cross our minds. When we get a promotion or a material blessing, do we immediately think of others? Or do we think, what can I do for myself? This was Daniel's first act of influencing for good, using his position and authority for his friends. And it sets the stage for what is to follow. But I think Daniel's influence was far wider than his close circle of friends. Look at what Jeremiah says in chapter 29, verse 4. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Then verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. We need to read those verses in the context that the Israelites were in captivity as slaves to the Babylonians. As Ezra says in chapter 9 and verse 9, For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia. And so God says, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, Uh, plans to prosper and not to harm, plans for a hope and a future. It all sounds pretty good, but now contrast that to the cruel bondage in Egypt. Exodus 1 and verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramesses, And so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And the children of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. Why do you think there's such a difference between slavery in Babylon and Egypt? The Babylonians were not friendly, gentle people in their conquests. They were as brutal and savage as the Egyptians, as we'll see later. But there is not a single word of their cruel oppression of the Israelites. And I believe this is because Daniel would simply not have allowed it, not on his watch. Sure, his people were in captivity, and justly so for their sins, but under his authority and governorship in Babylon, they would be treated with the respect and dignity deserving of all God's children. This is Daniel again using his position and influence for the good of others. Our next illustration of this is in Jeremiah chapter 39, where we read the following verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all the army came against Jerusalem and besieged it. This is now the third wave of attack. And the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house, and the house of the people, and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. And yet we read in verses 11 and 12 of the same chapter that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave command concerning Jeremiah through Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him, look after him well, and do him no harm, but deal with him as he tells you. Why do you think he said that? How would Nebuchadnezzar even know who Jeremiah was or care about him? Have you ever wondered why he would do that for some random stranger in a vassal country hundreds of miles away? I'd suggest that again it can only be through the influence of Daniel back in Babylon advising the king. Daniel telling Nebuchadnezzar to please look after the prophet Jeremiah. Our next example of Daniel's work is in. Second Kings chapter 25, where we read in verse 27 onwards, in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above all the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments And every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. What a strange thing to do for a prisoner. Maybe set him free if he's not your enemy, but rather one from a previous regime. But why set him above all the other kings? And why provide for him a daily allowance for his whole life? and invite him to your royal table. Once again, I can only assume that Jehoiachin sat next to Daniel at the dinner table, who had influenced the king to do this generous act. Daniel's motivation may also have been to assist in the fulfillment of God's promise to Solomon. In 1 Kings 9 verse 5, where he said, I will establish your royal throne of Israel forever forever as I promised David your father, saying you shall not lack a man to sit on the throne of Israel. After all, how was the Messiah supposed to arise and save Israel if the royal line was in prison? Once again, Daniel is at work behind the scenes, leveraging his position and relationship with the king for the good of God's people, and in particular, Jehoiachin. The next incident for us to consider is recorded at the end of Second Chronicles 36 and repeated in Ezra chapter 1, where Ezra says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be fulfilled by the mouth of Jeremiah. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of Yahweh, the God of Israel, for he is the God who is in Jerusalem." And so Cyrus released the captives under Zerubbabel, and he gave them vessels of silver and gold, goods and beasts and costly wares, plus the vessels of the house of the Lord and cedar from Lebanon to build the temple. And again, we have to stop and ask ourselves, why would Cyrus do this? I understand releasing prisoners from a previous regime, but the loss of the nation's slave labor force, the wealth from the treasury and the cedar from Lebanon to build something in a country hundreds of miles away This makes no sense. I believe the most logical explanation gain has to be the influence of Daniel. After all, this was the temple of his God, and like King David, he wanted to provide for its building and pray towards it three times a day. And finally, one more example, over 500 years later, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. As we discussed earlier, Daniel had been made minister of education, being chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. So what did Daniel teach them? Isaiah chapter 60, verses 3 and 6 says, And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. And so they did exactly as prophesied by Isaiah. Down through the centuries, Daniel was still influencing the wise men of Babylon to seek The Jewish Messiah. So let's summarize quickly the illustrations we looked at of Daniel's influence for good of God's people. Firstly, promotions for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Decent treatment of the Israelite slaves in exile in Babylon. Jeremiah was looked after by the marauding Babylonian army, Jehoiachin was released from prison and fed at the king's table his whole life. Zerubbabel was given generous provisions for their return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And lastly, the wise men came from the east to worship the Messiah. So Daniel truly used his position of authority for the benefit of others. And so the question for us is, What are we doing to use our influence for the good of others versus our own good? How do we leverage our assets or relationships to better serve our fellow men and women? As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 24, Let no one seek his own good, but everyone the good of his neighbor. There is no doubt an exhortation in that for each one of us to do better. But that's actually not what originally inspired this article. Let's go back to the reason why Daniel was in his position in the first place. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 28, there are blessings and curses pronounced from Mount Ebel and Mount Gerizim. There are just 15 verses of blessing and then 50 verses of the most horrific curses that you can imagine. Curses of disease and famine and persecution and disaster to the point where you wished for death to the point where you would even eat your children in the siege. And then finally, after all of that, in verse 64, God says, You shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and the Lord will scatter you among all people from one end of the earth to the other. This is the final punishment after God had sent his servants, the prophets, rising up early over and over again, and they would not listen. So eventually he says to Jeremiah, in chapter 7, verse 16, As for you, do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or a prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I will not hear you. Don't waste your time anymore. The time has finally come for exile to Babylon. And yet, incredibly, God positions Daniel there in Babylon to take care of his people. A man greatly beloved, we're told, and a man in whom is an excellent spirit. Not just any man, but the best. It's just unbelievable. This is the God that we worship, who even when he is so angry with his people that he sends them into exile, he still arranges for Daniel to be there in charge in Babylon to look after them. His promise is, I will never leave you. Forsake you. Hebrews 13, verse 5. And as Moses said in Deuteronomy 33, verse 27, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Even when we are at rock bottom, even when his anger has sent us into exile, even then, underneath that are the everlasting arms of the eternal God. What an amazing, compassionate, Gracious God, who loves us like a father pities his children. And so, too, it is for us that in all things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Romans 8, verse 37. And so Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the exhortation of Daniel in exile as an agent of God's undying love and compassion for his children. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, and nothing could separate Israel from the love of God that was in Daniel the prophet. This extravagant providence was in fact spoken of by Daniel's contemporary, the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 11 and verse 16. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Though I removed them far off among the nations, and though I scattered them among the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. Yahweh was truly their sanctuary through his servant Daniel, their refuge from the storm, their rock in whom to trust. So finally then, one last glimpse of this amazing man, Daniel. In chapter 6, we know that the 120 jealous governors influenced Darius to sign a decree that Whoever takes petition to any god or man for thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Then in the very next verse we read this, verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. In his moment of dire need and distress, about to be thrown to the lions, he gave thanks. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? He was not pleading for his life. He was not crying for mercy. But he was giving thanks. What was he giving thanks for under those circumstances? We're not told, but I think he gave thanks for all the opportunities that he had had to prosper God's people, to give them a hope and a future. How do I know that that's what he gave thanks for? Because we are similarly told by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 23 that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed, betrayed to be thrown to the lions, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What was Jesus giving thanks for? I think we assume that we give thanks for the same thing that Jesus did. Jesus gave thanks, and so we do likewise. But we give thanks for Jesus himself and what he's done for us. So what was Jesus giving thanks for? Certainly not for the piece of bread, but for what it represents, his body of believers that this Passover meal was going to give a hope and a future to. Again, the giving of thanks in the face of scourging and an excruciating death. Amazing characters, Daniel and Jesus, who thought of others before themselves. Men who used their influence for good, as the writer to the Hebrews says in 7 verse 25, Wherefore he is able to save to the uttermost them that come unto God by him, seeing he ever lives to make intercession for us. Though we remain still in exile from the new Jerusalem, God has provided a man for us. And not just any man, but a man greatly beloved, and in whom is an excellent spirit. Amen.